1: Psalm 45, to the chief musician, set to the lilies. A contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. With your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory places by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women, At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him and the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers, shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Where is that cited in the New Testament? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The book of Hebrews. I should have asked that as the question today. Then I would have gotten all of these trees. Oh, by the way, speaking of the question, this is today's. This is today, Claudia made this, this will be raffled off to the question getter, and it does have lights on it, it needs a new battery, uh, you just, and then, it, whatever, blink, 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 or whatever, okay, very nice. Get ready with your brain power. Oh, I got to read the, uh, our verses today are Joshua 11:16 16 through 23, it's entitled, "And Joshua took all the land, thus Joshua took all this land. The mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan Plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anav, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. God made an offer to the people of the world through the giving of his son, that is grace. This offer extends forgiveness for every sin ever committed. That, on the other hand, is mercy. Grace cannot be earned. If it could be, then it would not be grace. However, mercy can be granted based on a set condition or stipulation. For example, if you were sentenced to death, the judge may say, if you pay this particular amount, the death sentence will be commuted. There's nothing wrong with this. The one who holds the power determines what the rules and conditions are. In the giving of his son, grace was extended to us. In the acceptance of that offer through an act of faith, mercy is then granted. God is the offended party, and he has set the parameters for us to accept or refuse. Similarly, the Lord set the parameters for when Israel entered Canaan. That is stated clearly and unambiguously in the Law of Moses. In his commentary of Joshua 11:19, 19, John Gill states the following, without agreeing or disagreeing with what the Jews say, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel. Though according to the Jews, Joshua, upon first landing in Canaan, sent letters and messages to all the inhabitants of the land, offering them peace on certain terms, particularly that he sent three messengers or proposed three things to them. That those who had a mind to flee might flee, that those who were desirous of making peace might make it, and they that were for war, let them fight. All were for the last and so perished. That sounds like an offering of both grace and mercy. It was undeserved and it extended to any who met the terms set forth. But does it match with the preconditions already laid out in the law? Do you remember what the law says? Our text verse is from Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. There's nothing in the law to even hint at the claim of the Jews that John Gill cited. It is contrary to the law, and it is not found in Joshua. Further, it is contrary to the very nature of God in Christ, who is typologically seen in the verses today. The only reason for the Jews to make up something so ridiculous is that they either thought it would make them look less unfriendly and antagonistic, or that they believe God will pardon their sins without the means of pardon available to them under the law. As John Gill lived in the 1700s, the first option seems unlikely at best. The Jews had nothing to lose in regard to the people's impression of them over such an issue. Those who believed in the word at that time accepted that God ordained the things Israel did. Those who didn't believe in the word wouldn't care one iota. Only in the return of the Jews to Israel would such a commentary possibly be entertained. On the other hand, the Jews knew that they were not right with God, at least according to their scriptures. And so, to grant grace and mercy to those of Canaan would then alleviate their own guilty consciences. This is yet another reason why I do not recommend spending a lot of time in Jewish commentaries on the Bible. Their thoughts are skewed because they have rejected Jesus Christ. In their rejection of Christ, who is clearly seen throughout scripture, There will never be an understanding of what God is intending to show them and us. The less extra-biblical material that you look at in regard to the Word, the better off you will be. Yes, there are good commentaries and lots of exceptional helps out there, but they must be based on Scripture and in the proper context to be of any value at all. I will stop right there, and I will say that yesterday I typed a commentary on Acts, I think it was uh, 13.19. Anyway, it was one of these verses, and it says that the uh, Paul is speaking to the Jews in the synagogue, and he said that it was 450 years of such a period, okay? And it's very complicated, because that does not match anywhere in the Old Testament, apparently. All of the scholars that I read every day, and they're some of the finest scholars on the face of the planet, came up with all kinds of excuses to make this kind of semi-work but it doesn't, okay? And it's a little disconcerting to me to be doing a commentary on the Bible and not have something that is properly analyzed. And so I went looking around, and I found a guy, his name is Floyd Jones, At it, Southern, he's a Southern Baptist. He has a website out there. I was gonna actually email him and thank him for this commentary, but he's kind of King James only, and so I thought it would just rub salt in a wound. So I just linked him on my commentary, which you'll see in a few days. The way that he defined it is brilliant. It is literally brilliant, and it's an avenue I never would have thought of, and obviously nobody else had either, but it is exactly 450 years. And so the Bible will resolve itself. There are good commentaries out there, but there are a lot of commentaries that'll say, oh, uh, um, mm, er. The Bible does not um and er. Be wise and be discerning in how You spend your time studying the Bible. Today, we will see why the citation above is totally wrong. God does offer grace and mercy, but it is based on his unchanging nature. Let us be sure of this. When he says that Jesus is the only way for us to be reconciled to him, we need to accept that as absolute truth from God who does not lie. Great truths such as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts, I believe, might be two thoughts, is that he might utterly destroy them. It's verses 16 through 23. Verse 16, thus Joshua took all this land. In these words, an accounting for everything taken during the Canaan campaign is made. Many translations say took all that land, as if it is referring to the battles of the previous verses. Rather, it is more likely referring to what is said next, and so all this land is looking ahead to the description which is detailed in the rest of the words of this verse. These words are generally in the singular, for example, mountain and valley, but the meaning extends to mountains and valleys. It is a broad description of the conquering of Canaan. The credit is given to Joshua as the leader of the nation. His conquests will be noted in a sevenfold division of the land. It is he who took, verse 16 continues, the mountain country. The first division, hahar, literally the mountain, but meaning the hill country. There is debate as to the exact meaning of these seven statements, but it appears to be describing the south first and then moving northward. As such, this would probably be referring to Canaan from that perspective and speak of the mountain country of Judea. This is seen in numbers 13:17 where the same term is used. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, "Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains, Hahar the mountain." It is even described as the hill country in the New Testament. Luke 1:39. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah. Similarly, it will be seen later in Joshua that Hebron, which is in Judea, will be considered as the hill country. Joshua 20, so they appointed Kadesh in Galilee in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arava, which is Hebron in the mountains, literally Behar, in mountain of Judah. Next it says, verse 16 continues, all the south. The second division, Veet et kau ha-negev, and all the Negev. The word Negev means south, but it is also designating a specific location and is thus a proper noun, the south. It comes from an unused root meaning to be parched, and the Negev is a very parched land. This would be in accord with the words of Joshua 1040. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south. The Negev, and the lowland and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. From there it again goes back to what was stated in chapter ten, verse sixteen continues, all the land of Goshen. The third division, the Etkal Eretz Hagoshen, and all land the Goshen. This was a part of what was recorded in the previous chapter. Joshua 10:41, and Joshua conquered them from Kadesh-Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. In this verse, the word Goshen is prefixed by an article, the Goshen. Thus it is referring to a district. The name will be used only one more time, which is in Joshua 15, verse 51. There, it will be referring only to a city and not the greater area now being described. As a reminder, Goshen means drawing near or approaching. Verse 16 continues, the lowland. The fourth division, the Etha ha-shephalah, and the Shephelah. The Shephelah is a transitional region of soft, sloping, rolling hills in south-central Israel, stretching six to nine miles in length. The word comes from Shephel, meaning to be low or abased. Thus, in comparison to the mountainous area, it is the abased, the lowland. Next, verse 16 continues, and the Jordan Plain. The fifth division, Ve'et HaArava and the Aravah. This is the plain that extends about 100 miles south from the Dead Sea to the Gulf of Aqaba, forming a border between Israel and the Jordan. The word comes from Arav, to grow dark or to become evening. This would be because of the darkness of the terrain. However, that is identical to Arav, meaning to take or give in pledge. Next, verse 16 continues, the mountains of Israel. The sixth division, the Ethar Yisrael and mountain Israel israel although debated this is probably referring to the mountainous region of the area north of jerusalem and extending past galilee northward this would have been the area taken during the events earlier in chapter 11 also verse 16 continues and its lowlands the seventh division U and his lowland this would be the lowland area of Israel, north of the land of Judah, and would include the coastal plain. With this division given, more specific detail is provided concerning the area to the north. Verse 17, from Mount Halak, min hahar He halak, from the mountain, the halak. This is a mountain mentioned only here and in chapter 12. The name comes from halak, meaning smooth. For example, it was used in Genesis 27, verse 11, saying, And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Halak, The word is used figuratively in Proverbs and Ezekiel for speaking in a flattering manner because the smooth tongue is so employed. Verse 17 continues, And the ascent to Seir. Haole Seir. The ascender Seir. Sayir means hairy, coming from Sayir or hairy. Refer again to Genesis 27 11. And Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy Sayir man, and I am a smooth skinned man. The Bible gives the he goat as an analogy because it is hairy, and it is the animal used as a sin offering, such as on the Day of Atonement and elsewhere. The mountain, Halak, is defining the southern border of Canaan as originally described by the Lord. Because it is neither the southernmost point in Canaan, and being mentioned only twice in Joshua, we can speculate that we are given these locations for typological reasons. Also, consider that both names so far, Halak and Seir, are derived from words found in one verse of Genesis. Genesis for now the narrative continues with verse 17 going on even as far as baal god in the valley of lebanon the baal ha lebanon and unto baal god in valley the lebanon the name baal god means lord of fortune with a secondary meaning of lord of the invasion this is because god fortune comes from gadad meaning to cut or invade all simply means master hence it is one with authority lebanon means white one or even mountain of snow however it is derived from the word lavan meaning white that is identical to lavan or brick because bricks turn white when they are fired that word carries the connotation of works because bricks are fashioned by man as opposed to stone which is fashioned by god the type of valley here, Bikat, comes from Baka, meaning to cleave, rend, or rip open. Hence, it is a valley that is split between mountains. Baal God in this valley of Lebanon, is next said to be, verse 17 continues, below Mount Hermon, Tachat Har Hermon, under Mount Hermon. Hermon means sacred. This location is given as the northern border of Israel. Hence, the words of this verse are essentially saying everything between the southern border and the northern border was taken by Joshua. This cannot be taken in the absolute sense, as Israel never drove out all the inhabitants of the land. It is giving the scope of the victories attained by Joshua within the borders and concerning those armies they faced in battle. Of them, verse 17 continues, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. It is still referring to Joshua using singular verbs. More precisely, it reads, And all their kings captured and struck them down and killed them. Every battle that he engaged in, he was victorious. Upon achieving victory, the king's execution followed, and thus it is a note of total victory. Of these many battles, it next says, verse 18 Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. The Hebrew reads, days many made Joshua with all the kings, the these, war. The total campaign for Canaan lasted between six and seven years. Israel left Mount Sinai on the 20th day of the second month of the second year after the Exodus, as is recorded in Numbers 10, verse 11. Moses then says in Deuteronomy 2, at the time we took to come to Kadesh Barnea, until we crossed over the valley of the Zered, was 38 years, until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. We have seen that the entry into Canaan was at the beginning of the 41st year since leaving Egypt. That was Joshua 4.19. In Numbers 13, the spies were sent out to look over Canaan. Next, go forward to Joshua 14.10, where Caleb says, and now behold... The Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. Therefore, it took between six and seven years to get to this point. Caleb was 40 years old in the second year after leaving Egypt. Being 85 at the end of the campaign means he was 39 when departing Egypt, 79 when entering Canaan, and another six to seven years of fighting to subdue Canaan. Verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel. The preposition is El, unto. Lo hayetah er hishlimah El, bene Noah's city which acquiesced unto sons Israel. The reason I would use this term rather than made peace is that it is a single word that more fully expresses the matter, acquiesced. It is the same word, shalom, used twice in chapter 10, and again here in relation to the inhabitants of Gibeon. Verse 19 continues, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. This was the people group who were the subject of the treaty made in chapter 9 and who Joshua defended in chapter 10. Hivite means tent villager but it is identical to Chava, or life, the name of Adam's wife, Eve. As we have previously seen, abraham notes that the verb form Chava means to lay out in order to live collectively and describes investing one's personal sovereignty into a living collective like a symbiont. It's mostly translated as to prostrate, which is to submit oneself wholly and bodily to a collective or to the leader of that collective. This is what the Gibeonites are doing. They are submitting themselves to a collective. The name Gibeon or Givon comes from gavia, meaning a cup or a bowl. When it is upside down, it looks like a hill. As such, it means hill town or hilly. Remember, it is closely associated with the New Testament word Gabbatha. Verse 19 continues All the others they took in battle. It is not speaking of the act of battle, but of the entire campaign. Ha kol ba milchama, the all they took in the war. Every city that Israel faced was defeated. Only Gibeon acquiesced to the power and fear of Israel, joining them through the cutting of a covenant. Verse 20 For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. It is singular, heart, for from Yehovah was to strengthen their heart. The meaning is that the actions and directions of the Lord caused the people to strengthen their collective heart. The Lord didn't actively change it, but by his designs, the people made their own unified heart strong against him. And there was a purpose in this. Verse 20 continues that they should come against Israel in battle. Likrat ha milchama et Yisrael, To meet the war with Israel. Instead of acquiescing to Israel, as Gibeon had done, these nations knew they were to be either anathematized or brought into subjugation. Thus, they needed to stand and fight. With their hearts strengthened, the latter was their united choice. Verse 20 continues that he might utterly destroy them. Lema'an ha to end purpose, anathematize them. The Lord was leading them to strengthen their heart against them so that they would be wholly destroyed through the act of anathematizement. They would corrupt Israel through their wicked practices, so they needed to be eliminated. Verse 20 continues, and that they might receive no mercy. Le'bilti heyot lahem techina. To know, be to them, supplication, giver. I inserted the word giver there for clarity. This is a new word in scripture, Techina. It is almost always used in the sense of supplication for favor. As such, the words here are complicated. I would suggest that rather than saying that they might receive no mercy, as if the action is from the Lord, it is instead saying that the object of supplication, meaning the Lord, is not available to them. That is because their heart was hardened against him. As a result, verse 20 continues, but that he might destroy them. For to end purpose, destroy them. This is the point of how the Lord acted and directed events to occur. The people were corrupt. They would corrupt Israel and they needed to be exterminated. Had Joshua sent in offers of peace, as ridiculously claimed by the Jews in the opening comments of the sermon, these words could not be included in the passage. Nor would the words in the law have been given previously, which are next referred to. Verse twenty continues, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Kaashurt Siva Yehovah et Moshe, for which commanded Yehovah Moses. The commands to Moses were explicit. And they were repeated several times in various ways, such as in our text verse today. The Lord commanded Moses, and Moses repeated the commands to the people. No treaties were to be made, no voice of supplication was to be heeded, and none of the inhabitants were to be allowed to live. The Lord, through his actions and instructions, led the inhabitants to bring these things upon themselves, while Israel brought destruction upon them. Verse 21, and at the time Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains. The word mountain is singular all three times in this verse. Thus, it is referring to the hill country each time. Anakim comes from Anak, meaning neck. Therefore, the Anakim are a clan of people known for their unusually long or thick necks, or the adornment on their necks. Think of the Egyptians and how they had those neck adornments. These people were driven out, verse 21 continues, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anav, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Hebron means alliance. Debir means place of the word. Anav means grape or fruit coming from a root that means to bear fruit. Judah means praise. Israel means he strives with God. The Anakim were cut off from these places by Joshua and more. Verse 21 continues, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. They were not merely cut off as if driven out, but they were destroyed entirely. This group is emphasized out of all of those destroyed because it was the word concerning them that brought about Israel's time of punishment in the first place. When the spies returned from Canaan in Numbers 13, they said the following, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight only Joshua and Caleb stood against the word of the other 10 spies. Now the text specifically notes that Joshua led Israel in the defeat of them and more. In Joshua 15, it will be Caleb who personally destroys the Anakim of Hebron. It next says, verse 22, none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. The verb is singular, and thus it is referring to Joshua. None left singular, Anakim, in land, sons, Israel. Joshua, as the leader, ensured that in all of the land where Israel dwelt, no Anakim was left alive. As such, verse 22 continues, they remained only in Gaza, in Got, and in Ashdod. Gaza, or Aza, means strong. Got means winepress. Ashdod means ravager. These are the only areas where these men of giant stature remained. Eventually, they and the other giants would even be wiped out from there. Verse 23 So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. In complete obedience to the law, as spoken by the Lord and as conveyed by Moses, so Joshua did. The land was subdued and the inheritance was secured for Israel. Verse 23 continues And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. This anticipates the division of the land in Joshua chapter 13. We are given a brief summary of events now, which will be more fully explained later in Joshua. The point here is to highlight Joshua's obedience to the law and his ability to perform as the law directed. As an informative note, a new word, mahaloket, is introduced here. It means divisions coming from halak, to divide or share. Most of its 42 uses will be in the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles. And with that, the verse and the chapter end with, verse 23 finishing, then the land rested from war. There is another new word to close us out today, shakat. It signifies to be quiet or undisturbed. It comes from a primitive root signifying to repose. Hence, one can think of idleness or being undisturbed. Rather than Israel... It is the land itself that is spoken of in this manner. With the enemy subdued, there is a sense of calm and idleness of the land, which then leads the people to relax and to enjoy themselves. Who is it that will receive mercy from the Lord? And who is it that will be cut off forever? The answer is carefully recorded in his word. Anyone can know both the simple and the clever. Those who humble themselves before him they shall stand. But those who are filled with pride shall be cast away. Better to humble yourself under his great hand than to arrogantly trust in your own deeds and turn away. Jesus has paid the price to reconcile us to God. So let us trust in the marvelous thing he has done. Then on heavenly streets, we shall trod and revel in the glorious victory of God's own son. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. Joshua is the great type of Jesus fighting the Lord's battles while leading his people toward the time of anticipated repose that he offers them. The opening statement of this section corresponds to the final words of it. Verse 16, and Joshua took all the land, the this. Verse 23, and Joshua took all the land, and the land rested from war. It is like bookends to highlight what is in the intervening verses. The land is emblematic of the world to which Christ has come, retaking authority over it from Satan. Within the verses, the word mountain is used five times. Hence, it would be good to repeat the words of Avarim quoted back in chapter 10. The noun har, meaning mountain, is the Bible's common word for mountain or hill. Intuition dictates that the root of the word for mountain probably has to do with being elevated, but that's not correct. In Hebrew thought, a mountain is not something that's high, but rather a lot of something gathered. And so a mountain became synonymous for a large but centralized group of people, such as in Jeremiah 51:25, or even God's as in Isaiah 14, 13. As such, there is a focus on the centralized nature of peoples. In the first verse, there was also noted the seven divisions of the land. The first division was actually that of the mountainous country. That was followed by the Negev, or parched land. It is a land devoid of water. Water carries various connotations in the Bible, but here it would refer to life, especially life obtained through the word. The third division was the land of Goshen, meaning drawing near or approaching. The next was the Shephelah, meaning low or abased. After that was the Arava, or plain. This word ultimately comes from the idea of giving or taking in pledge. From there was mentioned the mountain of Israel, or he strides with God. That was accompanied by the final division of his lowland. We could equate that to his abasement. I would suggest that these seven divisions are each referring to Christ. He is one, the gatherer of God's people, two, the giver of water, life through the word in the otherwise parched world, three, the one through whom man may draw near to God. Four, the one who abased himself in order to bring the humbled to God. Five, the one through whom the pledge, meaning the Holy Spirit, is given. Six, the one who gathers God's people by striving with, meaning for God, in order to accomplish his purposes. And seven, who in his striving did so in his abasement. Each speaks of his incarnation in order to retake the right to the entire world verse 17 then referred to the scope of the events from mount halak or mount the smooth and the ascent to say meaning hairy hair in scripture speaks of awareness especially awareness of sin we've seen that a hundred times since genesis jesus came knowing no sin 2 corinthians 5 21 pictured by the smooth mountain but he arose in the likeness of sinful man that's hebrews 2 17 pictured by the hairy mountain in order to accomplish his work his ministry extended as it says unto Baal god in valley the lebanon translated through typology this would be unto lord of the invasion in the cleaving of the works in other words christ came as an aware man and accomplished all that was necessary under the law to bring man to god it is his works that make it possible all other works are insufficient to accomplish the purpose. This was said to be under Mount Hermon. Hermon has been a consistent picture of heaven when it is presented. The picture is Christ accomplished his work on the earth under the sacred place, heaven, not in it. He came from heaven to earth to do this. From there, it said he captured all their kings, struck them down, and killed them. That is well explained by Paul in Colossians 2, verse 15, where it says that Christ disarmed principalities and powers and that he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in his cross. The length of Joshua's conquest was many days. Christ came, he lived many days on the earth, and he warred against the powers that stood against man. Despite the cross being the final victory over all those powers, There is no contradiction in this. One leads to the other. Joshua's campaign suitably reflects the life and work of Christ. Verse 19 noted that not a city acquiesced unto the sons of Israel. A city is a place of man's creation. It is thus a place of rebellion against God because it reflects his own civilization and culture. It is independent of God, trusting in its own resources and fortifications to maintain and sustain itself. Understanding this, it then said, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. As we saw, Hivite is identical to Chava, or life. The verb form gives the sense of submitting oneself to a collective. Also, Gibeon or Givon comes from Gavia, meaning a cup or a bowl. When upside down, it looks like a hill. As noted, it is closely associated with the New Testament word Gabbatha. Jesus submitted himself to the Roman authority in order to establish the new covenant in his blood. The Gibeonites submitted themselves to Joshua in order to enter into the covenant relationship that had been established with Israel. This is a review of everything that's been going on so far. The entire thought speaks of total exclusivity. There's the uniting with Christ and there is all else. The false religions and false religious expressions of the world all stand in enmity with Jesus. All will be destroyed. Only those who submit to his collective and become united to the commonwealth of Israel will be spared. With that, the rather difficult words of verse 20 spoke of the fact that it was from the Lord to strengthen their heart. Any religion based on man's devising will, by default, strengthen the heart of those who follow it. It is a natural consequence of it. And I would go even further, and I would say that any cult within Christianity that puts something above allegiance to the Lord will strengthen their heart against him, such as King James Onlyism, working We're King James only. And all of a sudden, they've set up an idol in their heart of something that should not be idolized. And so they're focusing more on that than they are on the Lord. And you'll find this in any aberrant sect within Christianity. Only those who humble themselves and submit to the gospel are of any redeemable value to him. The others are strengthened to come against Israel, God's commonwealth in battle. They are against God in Christ. Israel is for God in Christ. It's plain and simple theology. Before I go on, I'd like to say I'm not saying that King James only people aren't saved. I'm saying that they are putting up a wall against God with their poor doctrine. That is where the importance of the words to no be to them supplication giver arises. Anyone in any religion outside of the faith in Christ has no avenue available for them to have their supplications heard and responded to because they do not have the object of supplications, meaning the Lord available to them. As such, there is only one avenue which is available to them, and that is destruction. Again, plain and simple theology. This is because it is, as the verse says, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Man is under law, be it Adam or Moses. God gave the law of Moses to redeem man, but it is clearly a law that must be fulfilled vicariously by Christ. Hence, faith in Christ's fulfillment of the law through his work, including his death is the only avenue for man to be reconciled to him. Everybody got that point? You cannot earn your salvation through being obedient to the law of Moses. Paul tells you that about 50,000 times in various ways in the New Testament. Yes, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but he focuses on that precept more than any other. We need to focus on Christ's fulfillment of the law of Moses. With that, the seemingly unrelated words concerning the Anakim were given The reason they seem unrelated is because they are the only people groups singled out. Their name comes from Anak, or Neck, but that requires more explanation. Anak signifies being fitted out with supplies and thus furnished liberally, just as a necklace is made up of many pieces. It is thus used figuratively as a sign of pride in Psalm 73, verse 6, when referring to the wicked, where it says, therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Man can either humble himself before God in Christ, or he stands at enmity with God. There are no other options. That is well reflected in the Proverbs. In Proverbs 29, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. With that, it says that these Anakim were destroyed from Hebron, from Debir, from Anath, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. The picture when considering the meaning of their names is that the proud will be destroyed from any place that is in accord with God's purposes, alliance with him, where his word is, in the place where fruit bears, where his praise exists, and where those who strive with him find their place. The Anakim, the proud, and their cities, their place of rebellion against God, were destroyed by Joshua and they remained only in an area outside of where Israel dwelt. The idea is that anything outside of the scope of true faith in Christ is eliminated and it is cut off. It has no part in what God offers. Finally, verse 23 referred to the total victory of Joshua over the land and giving it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions. It speaks of what Jesus will do for his redeemed. That will be in a land that is at peace from war the enmity will cease and man will be in harmony with God once again. This is already realized for all who have come to Christ in the sense that the victory is already won. Someday that will be actualized for all of his people. But the fact that it is seen here in Joshua gives us the hope-filled assurance that it will, in fact, come to pass. God has a plan, And he is slowly and methodically working it out in Christ. It is being typologically shown in these Joshua sermons, one step at a time, so that we can see how, in the end, even if any of the typology presented is wrong, the overall picture is perfectly clear. The victory is found in Jesus, and he has granted it to any and to all who fall under the collective commonwealth of Israel. For Israel, the people, it is those who have come to Christ through his finished work of the law and who have been circumcised in the heart by him. For those of the Gentiles, it is those who have come to Christ through his cross, giving up on any other avenue of reconciliation with God. The same salvation in the same manner is offered to Jews and Gentiles through simple faith in Jesus. All others, I'm sorry, folks, they will not be a part of what God is doing for humanity as he reconciles us to himself. The theology in that regard is plain, and it is simple. It is either Jesus or nothing with God. Nothing by default means total and permanent separation from him. Consider your place, give up on self, and come to God through the finished, final, and forever work of Jesus Christ. And please do it today. Wonderful stuff. I mean, the Lord keeps giving us these these things, a little bit built on each story, a little more, a little more, to ensure that we have the right understanding of what he is doing actually in Jesus Christ. He takes real historical people that really fought these battles. I mean, we know to this day the name of that place that's lying there in ruins. We know how many people died sometimes or how hot the stones were when the fire was burnt in the city. We know all this. So this is actually literally recorded history. And then from there, God takes these types and he says, I'm going to use this to show you a beautiful plan of the redemption of the world through the giving of my son. Here's the type. Joshua doing his thing. Here's the any type. Jesus doing his thing. It all fits and it all builds again and again so that we see every single step of the way so that nothing is missed by God please have faith in this. I mean, it, yes, I understand when I mentioned that 450 years earlier, you can write around it and you can say, well, you know, this kind of fits and here's how it can kind of fit. But that doesn't really solve the answer. Eventually, there is an answer. The Bible always comes up with one. I can't wait till you read that commentary. It's coming out in about 10, 11 days now. And when you do, you're going to say, wow, check that out. That's amazing. It's something that is." totally obscure to the way i would have thought of approaching this and yet it comes out to exactly 450 years and when i looked at it i thought it's so simple sometimes you overlook the obvious because you're trying so hard to do it from and that's what all these scholars have done for all this time and thank goodness for this guy he's he's got his website it's a giant website with all this wonderful information on there and he goes methodically through things that people call contradictions then he discovers why they're not contradictions. And I don't know if it's all his original work or not. I have no idea. But I'm very glad to read it, and uh, I'm, I'm just happy to go there and to find out that there was a resolution to that, rather than me just giving a commentary that well, scholars say, and very glad because I would not have come up with that answer. I would not. have. I would have been many, many years and thinking on it and eventually saying, I got to go at this another way. And there's just not time for that in life. So Monday's coming and I got to type another sermon. So I would have just probably dropped it out of my mind. I don't want to do that. I was so happy to see that very simple commentary. Wow. Anyway, um, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. That is the core that all of us need to remember. Okay, everything that we're seeing right here, all of this is pointing to that one central fact. He did the work and died in fulfillment of the work. We don't do the work and please God. We don't, okay, see how great I am. That's irrelevant. We want to see how great God is to do the work and then we call on him. That is what God asks you to do. Have faith in the gospel. Believe that Christ died for your sins. Believe that he rose again and you will be saved. This is what God asks of you. A simple message that is laid out in the most complicated verses you can imagine. But there it is. Our closing verse comes from Colossians chapter 2. I read this a lot. I love Colossians chapter 2. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's exactly what we've been looking at for the past 35, 40 minutes. Exactly. Marvelous what God has put into his word. Next week, I had to uh, cross out because I forgot next week is Christmas. Christmas. And so Luke one twenty-seven, the virgin's name was Mary. And I didn't think of something to rhyme. I was so busy. I... Um, uh, Okay, Luke one twenty seven. She's not called Cope and she's not called Harry. The virgin's name was Mary. There, I got you a rhyme. Okay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, special... You can put this in your house and light it up over the next couple days if you get one. I I got two questions just in case the first one is too hard. I I got another one. And if you don't get it on the second one, I'll think of another one really quickly. Somebody is going to walk out of here with this made by Claudia. In Philippians 2, Paul sent who back to them when they heard he was sick and almost died? Who said? Say it again. Who said that? You or you? Who said that? Did you say that? Okay, it was you. Yeah. Say it again. I just heard a voice over there. Now we're not sure what we said. No, no, go ahead. Say it again. Ah, she got it. Come up here and take this. Yay. That was amazing. Now, let's, let's do a, a, just a bonus one. Just uh, No, I'll, I'll save that for another question sometime. Here we go. There we go. Very, come over here. Let people see you. Look at how smart this girl is. This is our returning missionary from uh, Thailand. There we go. Thanks,
0: Claudia.
1: She's got a different name now since she came back from Thailand, though. Good stuff. Okay, very good. Did anybody else get that without saying it? Epaphroditus. You know, I always use them as an example. Uh, When people claim healing in Jesus' name and all these charismatic churches, I always use him and a couple other people. uh, You know, I claim healing in Jesus' name. Well, Epaphroditus, he, he returned to them. He was sick and almost died. Why didn't Paul just claim healing over him? Right? Uh, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Why did not you just heal him? Why don't you just claim healing like these guys on TV? Yeah. Timothy, I need you to drink a little wine and not just water for your stomach problems. Why don't you just claim healing in Jesus' name and that be done with it? Okay? There are times when the Lord will heal. I believe in faith healing. That's why we pray. But there are times where the Lord says, this person is going to endure through this affliction. I prayed three times for the Lord to take it away. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Okay. There are times where he wants us to go through trials and troubles for his own purposes. Don't believe in faith healers ever, but pray for faith healing. And Joshua took all the land. Thus, Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the South, all the land of Goshen. So he did do. The lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel, and its lowlands too. From Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them, as is now known. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle, sending them to the pit to dwell for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. You see that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them. So the situation demanded as the Lord had to Moses commanded. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab showing no pities from all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod as well. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, so he did do. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their divisions by their tribes too. Then the land rested from war. That's the end of this chapter, and there ain't no more. Lord God. Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. Then we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. And Sergio is going to tell us what is going on next week.
0: Yeah, so Charlie told you earlier today that we have something different next Sunday. He didn't say what it is, and that's what I'm here to tell you, what that's going to be. <laughs> so for the past few years, Charlie had been asking these Bible questions, these trivia questions, like this one now. And... uh Sometimes he asked us easy questions like, what is the seventh word from the third chapter of the third book from the end? And sometimes he asked us hard questions that he himself didn't know the answer to. No, you did, but... (laughs) Um, But that was all for a purpose. That was all to prep us. That was all to prep us for the ultimate test of Bible knowledge. Yes, the ultimate test the challenge of all challenges, the superior Bible challenge.
1: Ooh, I can't wait. Now whose idea
0: was this? So that was Rhoda's idea, and with Jody's help, uh, preparing questions, and uh, it's going to be a game show style, live streamed Bible trivia event, game. That's right, the rules are simple, only three rounds. The church is gonna be divided in two. This is the only time in history where the division of the church is okay, (laughs) into two teams. And each team will compete against each other in the Ultimate Bible Knowledge Test. Round two, three best of each team are going to be selected and they will compete too. And then round three is a bonus. Now that one is where the whole church gets back together and gets to compete against the pastor. Uh, (laughs) uh, You're excited about that. I don't like
1: that. I've said this when you're sitting on that side, it's always hard. You always get a, a, a mental stop, and that's I, you're overestimating my ability.
0: Well, it's a win-win. You know, it's a win-win. If the church wins, they'll be like, "Wow, I taught them well." But if uh, they lose, then we got more work to do. Okay. I guess. Uh, uh, which I think I think we're gonna lose. <laughs> but what about the online members? So you get to participate too. You will be the rescue wheel for both of the teams and Charlie as well. When uh, we face a struggle, we face a roadblock, we don't know how to answer, we'll turn to you for help. Each round we'll have one time to ask you for help and you won't be able to use Google, but that's okay, A trust, we trust you that you won't use Google to answer and you will just do your best knowledge and uh, help us out. So this is the Superior Bible Challenge, an exciting and educational event for all ages. This was written by the AI. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so don't miss it out. Next Sunday, the Christmas Day, uh, ten a.m.
1: That's it. Okay. I I, I got to tell you something. He was sending me messages. He had his message geared as soon as I sent him a message. Didn't matter what I sent him. If I gave him a thumbs up, there was the AI would respond. Oh. And he had to pro- program all this in. And then for a while, I for you know we were just messing with it. And the next day, I sent him a message and I got back this like what's the matter with Sergio? It's like he had too much cough syrup or something. And then I responded and I got back and I said, I I already said that to him. What's the matter with this? And I'm one. And after the third time, I was was like, don't ever do that to me again. He's having this thing automatically reply to me. And it was a little off, but I got to tell you, I was not happy with that because I thought, you know, I always, I only send important information. I never fool around. I never joke. Okay, well, maybe that's not true, but I didn't... I don't want him to miss something that is important. And at the end of the day, I realized something I had asked him that the AI had answered that he had never answered. And I'm like, search I need an answer to this. So, yeah. Anyway, there you go. So that's that AI program. I actually talked about uh, that AI program during the update today. I will cut out the clip and send it to you or the timestamp so you can see that. Um, let's see here. This is pushed. We're ready. Okay. I'll take the Lord's Supper. Uh, don't forget, to, if you're not here next week, uh, I understand that, but if you can watch this, I think it'll be fun. I I don't know. They planned this. Uh, I had nothing to do with it other than going and eating lunch while they talked. And then after that, I was not allowed to any of the conversations. I know nothing of the questions. I don't know what they're going to do or how it's going to be set up. So um, uh, I I anticipate fun times with this. So please, if you don't attend here, at least watch that because I think it'll be a fun time.